As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. You can take your pick for memorable moments from the 1994 Belgian Grand Prix weekend, from Eau Rouge being sanitised, or should that be neutered, with a temporary chicane, to Rubens Barrichello claiming his and Jordan's first pole position, and of course Michael Schumacher being disqualified post-race for the recently introduced plank under his car being too worn down. And to make matters worse for Schumacher and Benetton, two days later a two-race ban for a black flag infringement earlier in the season at the British Grand Prix was upheld held, meaning he would miss the next two races after Spa. In many ways, it was a week that summed up the summer of 1994, with Schumacher and Benetton looking peerless on track and finding ways to fall into trouble off of it. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back at all that and much more from the end of August 1994, are Sam Smith and the man responsible for Barrichello's brilliant underdog pole position, Gary Anderson, and I should say that's not me saying that. Both Rubens and Eddie Jordan are on record as crediting this pole position to Gary. So at the risk, Gary, of teeing up your answer to the first question, uh, when you think of Spa 94, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, obviously, being on pole was was um, very important for the team. It was a, a major step. Uh, we've we've had, a com- had a competitive car that season. Um, Brazil, we were fourth. Uh, Aida, we were third. And you know it was it was continuing in that direction really uh, until Imola obviously when we had the uh, the massive uh, accident and then the deaths of two other drivers so I think it was one of those sort of situations where Spa was us getting back to, back up to speed again and it was nice to sort of outwit some of the big boys um, it was one of those things that it came to us a little bit you know but we'll come to that in a minute or two really when we talk about it more in detail. But it came to us. But really, I suppose my big disappointment is not taking away more points at the end of the day. Because if you're on pole, as Irvine was fourth, you know you'd hope to be coming out, coming home with uh, with decent points. But uh, that didn't happen. Yeah, and as you say, we'll we'll get into it properly later on. Sam, uh, you and I had a big discussion last week, scrambling around to find footage of this race. It's not one of the more available ones uh, across the internet. But what's your standout memory? Well, quite apart from Gary and Rubens' uh, excellent work in qualifying, for me, it's the 
the chief memory really is the totally alien concept of seeing cars breaking heavily into Eau Rouge, one of the the most famed corners in motorsport. It just felt so wrong and so weird. It, you know, it's, it, it was like the the World Cup the other year, been in December, wasn't it? It was just a completely wrong-headed thing to be doing. Um, then again, you know, I, I just I, you have to be a bit of a weirdo to have any affinity with what they were doing. Um, with that uh, with that corner at that time it just it just seemed that you know if, if there was one corner on one track that you wouldn't do that it is Eau Rouge but again you know the context of where Formula One was at that summer um, was all-encompassing really you know tracks were changing however late in the day they were and and these these bizarre chicanes uh, a host of circuits were were effectively you know changing your perception of of how everyone went motor racing that summer and of course so rouge radion still a still a sequence of corners that inspires debate today but we're not here to talk about today let's hear some memories uh, from our audience before we move on we put this one out on our instagram account which is bbv10s for those of you not following us over there yet come join us Lots of you mentioned Schumacher's disqualification, of course. Drifter Will simply said Plankware. Mr. Liam said The Plank. And uh, Konkolovos13 said the infamous DSQ. Bad Wolf Miniatures recalls how in the days before the internet and social media, it wasn't until watching the highlights that evening that you could find out Schumacher had actually been disqualified. I did see a few mentions too of Murray Walker appearing on the 10 o'clock news that night, which is how a lot of other people found out. Claudio Amorosi says Shumi being robbed and allowing Hill to crawl back into the title fight. Uh, Neil Condy, Josh Kay and Polar Andy CZ mentioned the Oru chicane with Josh saying it shows how shaken F1 was from the various events earlier in the year, which is kind of what Sam mentioned. Lastly, let's have some mentions for Rubens putting Gary's Jordan on pole. We had that from Big Strong Stew and Shank97, and also from Paddley85, who says, as an Irishman, seeing, on the, seeing the Jordan on pole was special. If you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of every episode of Bring Back V10s, plus a huge amount of bonus content, and be one of the first people to listen to our upcoming brand new mini-series revisiting a classic F1 season, sign up to the Race Members Club. It's only cost £24.99 to join for a year, or £2.99 a month, so if you'd like to become a member, or you just want to find out more about it, then look for the link in the description of this episode. I should also say that you get lots of bonus podcasts with Gary and Ed Straw as well in that feed. If you've not joined our community on X yet, we'd love to have you over there too. Those communities aren't always the easiest to find on that app. Um, We won't get into that, but don't worry. We've got you covered with a link in the description to that as well. And as we continue to blast through Series 9, you really need to get your questions in for our Ask Us Anything Series finale. Remember to get them to our inbox by emailing bringbackv10s at the-race.com. So with the plugs out of the way, let's get on with Spa 94. A big piece of news heading into the weekend was the announcement that Benetton would get Renault engines from 1995, giving the team the best engine on the grid alongside Williams. Renault said the decision to supply two top teams was taken after deep discussion within Renault Sport and only after engine maestro Bernard Dudo gave Renault Sport president Patrick Four assurances that they would be able to provide both teams with exactly the same engines at every Grand Prix. 
In his book, Total Competition, Ross Braun said Benetton's motivation to court Renault came when it detected fading interest from Ford in 1993 and what he felt was a lack of conviction with the 94 V8 engine until Ford then saw how competitive Benetton was, but by then it was too late, in Benetton's eyes at least. Renault addressed claims that its main motivation for doing this was to have an association with Michael Schumacher, with four saying Schumacher was a major part in our decision, but not all of it, because Renault believed Benetton was a top team with a quick car, not just a quick driver. Sam, how big was this news, though? The team that's leading the championship in battle with Williams-Renault, that iconic partnership, and now they're going to get their hands on a Renault engine too. I tend to think the significance was really on two fronts. I think the first was just the notion that the best driver in F1 at that time was going to be racing with the best engine. And there was a degree of, I suppose, inevitability about that. The the other thing that stood out for me was just the sense that both Renault and Benetton wanted to capitalise on the momentum that had been gained throughout 1994. I mean, in Renault's sense, it had been coming for many years. They'd already won championships. and, And for Benetton, it was... I suppose the realization of a couple of years of of real aspect, a bit of restructure with Tom Walkinshaw and and Rory Byrne and um, and especially Ross Braun coming on board and just wanting to capitalize on that momentum, as was mentioned, Ford had kind of dithered quite a bit. So they said the right things publicly, although they always seemed to, but didn't seem to kind of go through get through to the to the real sort of pace of the the front of the field. So. Renault had been in F1 for the last five years, won the last two titles and clearly wanted more. And it matched the ambition of Benetton, I think, which as a team was was on the up. That was plain. So the momentum in F1 is always important. But in 94, both Renault and Benetton had that in abundance. If you mix in the obvious political skills of Briatore and the overall sense that I suppose Schumacher was going to deliver on his early promise shown in 92 and 93, then it seemed like the perfect marriage in, in, in lots of ways. So significant, yes, but more than that, it gave Renault four cars capable of winning Grand Prix in 1995, and it had never previously had that. You know, it hadn't had that since it came into Formula Formula One. So strengthening numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's easy to look at it and say, you know, you'll um, you'll reinforce the, the engine package if you have another two drivers in it but I think it is important that you have as many as you can but if you do look at what Ross was saying about uh, about Ford dithering um, I was involved with Ford obviously with the Jordan 191 back in uh, 1991 and you know it's a, it's a relationship between Ford and Cosworth so it's a two-sided coin it never was black and white and you know they dithered then um, and then I got involved again with them in, in 1999 and 2000 and, and still they dithered basically. So I think that, you know, if you worked with them closely as obviously Ross Braun and the Benetton team did, they would see it a lot closer than, than I did in 1991. But they were never a team that was sort of, they were never a group company that you could sort of sit down and talk with and put a plan in action. Um, it would change from day to day. So I could definitely understand uh, Benetton's want to you know put feeders out as to getting a, another engine supplier and at the end of the day you know I think Renault were there and, and made decisions they went bang that's done right okay that's let's go on the next step and at that point in time I think Renault were very strong and obviously you know Michael Schumacher was shown that he was worth uh, 
worth his his, uh, his few dollars that he was earning because he was you know a top driver. So why not strengthen it? Because you never know. There were two different teams. Williams was a a real solid engineering team led by Patrick Head, and Patrick was just uh, you know Patrick and um, and Frank were both sort of like they took no prisoners uh, either on the engineering side or on the business side. Whereas Benetton were a different team with the the way they were sort of structured. So. They had two different sides of the coin, I suppose you might call it, trying to achieve the same goal. And I think it was a value to Renault for sure to to incorporate their efforts into Benetton as well as Williams. McLaren boss Ron Dennis took a chance to stir the pot a little here, saying it was inevitable that there would be a dilution of effort that would only become apparent once someone else was able to put the two Renault-powered teams under pressure and he hoped McLaren could be the team to benefit from this although its own engine situation for 95 which would involve a switch from Peugeot to Mercedes was not yet official we will come back to that shortly but on Renault's plans Ron added if their intention is to affect equality then that has to slow them down Gary you've just talked there about how strong Renault was based on the the capabilities of engine manufacturers back in the mid-90s was Ron right to question if having two teams and promising equality would slow Renault's progress or performance down in any way? Well, the thing is, you know, there's always politics being played and Ron was very good at that, stirring the pot and seeing what would come out the other end of it. So I think that's all he was really doing. He was saying, yeah, it's all good stuff, but you need to be careful. It was it was more, you know, it's not at Renault he's pointing the finger there. It's, it's at Williams and at, at Benetton, as you could be making the wrong decision here. So... I think you know that that's the way it still plays the same game right now. You know, they're still the same from team principles. They're still the same stirring the pot going on. As they can't many, resist, many, can they? Yeah, they, can, they can't resist because it's all they've got. It's all they've got outside of of uh, you know scoring points and races. They've, they've, that's the, the politics of the thing that makes other people think twice about something. But getting mileage from different teams, different drivers, different solutions of of car setup of car. Uh, concept of car, you know, car performance level is always important. So I think that, you know, once you go above two teams and four drivers, you start to stretch it a little bit. But I think if you can, if you can manage it and you have the budget to, to supply two teams, then that's a good place to be because it's so easy for one team to lose its way dramatically, um, and you know, you suffer as an engine supplier, you suffer the consequences for that. Whereas if you've got two teams, you've got you've effectively got two chances. And it's the same as, you know, we compare drivers a lot, two drivers. You can have a good driver and you can have a bad driver. You can have two good drivers or two bad drivers, but you never really know. They can only compare against themselves. So I think, you know, for a, for a given engine supplier in those days, having two teams was a, was a good solution. You mentioned politics there. Let's talk politics a bit more because Renault used the Benetton announcement as a chance to weigh in on the Williams driver situation for 1995, making clear its preference was for Nigel Mansell to partner Damon Hill. Patrick Four said he was sure Benetton would be strong and could win in 1995, and then added, just as we think the Williams package with Nigel and Damon can win. Bernard Dudo chimed in as well, saying... Drivers are a Williams decision usually, but generally Frank takes our opinion. I believe Hill has a good profile for a driver, but we have to find somebody to help him, and it is a problem. David Coulthard is a good driver, if a little young. We would prefer someone with more experience. 
At the time of Spa, Mansell's IndyCar team, Newman Haas, had just confirmed it was releasing him at the end of the year, citing Mansell's strong desire to return to F1. And Mansell said in his book that when he agreed to make his handful of appearances for Williams in 1994, which we've covered in the past, he wanted it to be a step towards a title challenge in 95. So the deal for his cameos in 94 included an option to race full time for Williams the following season. Sam, was Renault entitled to pile in on the Mansell versus Coulthard debate so publicly at this point? I reckon there was a degree of assumption on Dudo's part that Renault was more vital to Williams in these matters than was actually the case. I mean, yes, they did have power, you know, literally and metaphorically. Um, they'd clearly been a big part of Prost's recruitment. And they'd embraced Mansell back at Magnicourt too and, and the handful of races that he did in '94. They knew him, as did Williams, Mansell. They respected him and, and they were aware of, of, of what he was capable of when the, the conditions were right. But the, the, the thing was, at this stage of the season, Hill was doing such a excellent job in very, very difficult circumstances. And Coulthard, too, had come in and there, there were errors that, you know, he, he was a complete novice at, at Grand Prix. He was bound to make errors. But actually, he got some decent results as the season went on. I think probably Frank Williams and, and possibly Patrick Head too, they sort of changed their opinion of drivers ever so slightly, if if not if not significantly actually, after after Senna's death and, and particularly with that sort of coruscating year of ninety two where Mansell delivered, but you know, it was in, in sort of typical Mansell style, it was done with a you know, a lot of aggro as well at the same time. I think they saw that potentially the old guard weren't quite the force that they had been in the late eighties and early nineties, and that actually Hill and Coulthard, two drivers that were were clearly hungry, talented and, and let's face it as well, cheap, because they were I think that was quite attractive to to Frank particularly. But from a marketing standpoint, they were quite weak as well. So in the sort of, in the debit column, you had that. Um, I I tend to think that Dudo and Renault were merely pushing Mansell because they knew that there was a big element of box office to it because at that stage there was no Prost, there was no Senna. You know, Mansell was the big established name and, and they wanted, quite rightly, for what they were investing in Formula 1, some um you know some big neon lights over there over their garage with with Mansell's name on it so i think essentially there was a whole mix of things in there for Renault and behind the scenes they they weren't very much pushing for that we'll uh, we'll stick with french engine related stories uh then because gary's team jordan was being linked to both ford and peugeot engines for 1995 We'll do a deeper dive on the finalised Jordan Peugeot deal another time, uh, either in a McLaren Peugeot episode or when we cover a race around when this news was made official. But in Eddie Jordan's book, he said talks have been ongoing about sticking with heart engines for a third year because that relationship had been first class. But Eddie's view was it was costing us money and there was only so far Brian Hart could go without proper backing. Gary, we know you're a big admirer of Brian Hart. We actually spoke about him on a Members Club uh, episode we did with you recently. But did you share Eddie's view that for Jordan to take the next step, it needed to pair up with a bigger manufacturer? Well, yes, it's true. You know, as Eddie says, it was costing us money. Um, well, costing him money. He had to go out and find sponsorship <laughs> to uh, to pay for Brian's engines, whereas the Peugeot switch was uh, a completely different deal. You know, they were supplying engines. Um, and that that's a massive switch 
you know, from having to find that money. As far as, you know, the, the ability is concerned, Brian had the talent within his group of people to, to build a competitive engine. Um, but he just never had the financial stability to build it. He never had the, you know, he never was able to do the big plan two years down the road to have X engine. Um, so if that could have happened, it would have been great. And through all our engine suppliers that we had through the time, you know, we, we tried to get Brian involved with them. You know, if we could have got um, Yamaha to buy into the fact that Brian would have overseen the project, still be a Yamaha, but was Brian Hart at the helm of it, um, that sort of thing would have worked very, very well. But, it, you know, it was just so difficult for anybody to, to bite the bullet and sort of lose face by taking somebody like Brian Hart into position. But he, um, or into that position. But, you know, whenever you go and talk to Brian about things and you, you, you speak about doing stuff differently, um, you know, I remember calling him up one day and saying, Brian, can we lower the engine 20 millimeters, get the center of gravity down a bit? And uh, he said, I'll call you back in half an hour. Call me back in half an hour. Yeah, he said, I've had a look. I think we can. Um, when do you want me to get it done by? And that, and that was the difference. You know, he just got on with stuff. He, we, we understood each other quite well. We weren't asking for stupid stuff. We were just asking for stuff that would, that would in the end of the day, make the car go faster. So um, it would have been lovely to got Brian within, you know, financed correctly, uh, within a manufacturer, I suppose you might call it, to be able to allow him to use his expertise. Um, but that wasn't to be. So I think... What Eddie was saying there was, you know, for the team to move forward, uh, potentially it needed uh, a manufacturer supply of engines. Um, and that's that's really what his challenge was, to find that manufacturer supply. The, the difference between uh, Ford and, and Peugeot, I think, you know, it came down to the, the situation with, uh, with McLaren, really. So it got, it, it got itself sorted out, I suppose, without us playing a big part in it. So Ford, Ford was a legitimate option then as well? It was, yes, but for the same reasons as, as Ross Brown was saying. You know, the, the thing is you couldn't really get the, the commitment from Ford to do anything, um, whereas our Peugeot relationship was being driven by Ron Dennis wanting to get out of it but needing to get another team into position. And, you know, Ron Dennis was very happy with our 1994 results because they were, you know, there was something he could sell to Peugeot. Um, so we weren't the only team happy whenever we did we did well in '94. It was it was definitely Rome was pretty happy with that situation as well. <laughs> yeah, Eddie said in his book that the the Peugeot talks came around because obviously Rome was looking for a way out of McLaren's deal, and and uh, uh, Eddie believes Ron saw Jordan as a willing party that could take the engines on. But at the time, the Jordan Peugeot links were tied to McLaren's interest in Rubens Barrichello, and, and Ron was very upfront about that interest. Barrichello was under contract uh, to Jordan for 1995, but there was a buyout clause in his contract. Of course there was. This is Eddie Jordan we're talking about. And Ron acknowledged that Rubens had the ability to change teams, adding it's a possibility that he may change to McLaren. Ron said McLaren had an interest in his talent, saying he was one of several drivers under consideration, but McLaren didn't have to make a decision yet. Gary, did this one get as far as being on your radar within Jordan? Was there serious interest from McLaren? And knowing how fond you were and are of Rubens, uh, would you have had to fight Eddie to try and keep him? Um Probably because of the buyout clause, um, if that sort of come to fruition. But um, it was one of those situations where, you know, I suppose 1994, 
Rubens had just sort of come of age. You know, he had he had done the year before. He had done it, gone through his learning curve. He had shown, like at um, uh, Donington, you know, his talent and and, and in quite a few races. Um, but he never really got you know to the front end because just the car wasn't good enough. We were fighting budgets. We were trying to exist basically. Uh, so '94 was the first time that he had a car that was that was worthy of his talents. So he was just showing his true worth and um, and showing it very very well. Obviously, Imola became a big impact on it um, because of his accident and because of Ayrton Senna's death, um, and that sort of hurt him for a while. Um, but at the end of the day, you know. Ron was always looking for the next up and coming driver, the next up and coming Ayrton Senna, because he would, you know, that's what he wanted really. And 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 in Bar in uh, Barrichello, that you know that that was true. So yes, it was always on the radar that he would disappear somewhere else. Um, and it was one of those sort of situations where we never really knew when. But Eddie Eddie handled all that stuff. To be honest, it wasn't it wasn't really a conversation that we had. He knew that. He knew what we needed in a driver within the team. He knew that we got on very well with Rubens, you know, as far as his commitment to the team and as far as his, um, you know, ability within the team. It was it was second to none. So you know, we we just we just got on with our job. Eddie got on with his job, finding the money and to keep us alive. And uh, you know, Barrichello was one of the bargaining factors, I suppose, in the midst of all that. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Ron Dennis also addressed suggestions that him talking so openly about drivers for 1995 was unfair on Martin Brundle, who was racing for McLaren in 94. Ron said, I don't think it's unfair that drivers constantly have to demonstrate their competence. At the moment, Martin has done a superb job and surprised everyone, including himself. It comes from constant but gentle pressure. I like drivers to be in that position where we are obliged to pay them, but not obliged to put a car at their disposal. Only Ron. Um, Brundle's job security came up during the weekend as well, actually, during an argument with Jean Alacy in qualifying outside the McLaren garage. Uh, when Brundle, t- uh, Alacy told Brundle he was driving for McLaren not for your value, but because there was no one else. There ended up being something similar, actually, between Dennis and Mark Blundell the following year. Mark talked uh, to Sam back in our Series 1 episode about Nigel Mansell's brief McLaren stint, about how he disliked being on a race-by-race contract with McLaren, but Ron felt it was good for motivation. So, Sam, what do you think of Ron Dennis's approach to driver motivation? Well, first of all, it wouldn't be an early 90s uh, podcast on F1, would it, if, if Brundle and Lacey weren't having a, a Barney in the, <laughs> in the pit paddock or the pit lane. But yes, Ron, well, um, you know, we, we know he had streaks of genius in the way that he ran his team, and, and that was evident in the success that he had. But there were also flashpoints of 
incompetence is too strong a word, but you know, of of, of classic Ron management. Um, I think McLaren in '94 was a team clearly that was a bit exposed, and, and that could actually be traced back to the end of '91 when when Ron sort of got caught unawares by Honda's shock exit. I think we've talked about that in previous episodes, haven't we? You know, they'd say these days Ron wasn't reading the room, etc. That's how they'd phrase it these days, and and I think he was guilty of a lot of that for for all the sort of great management and and, and strategization of the team. Um, often he was, you know, he was caught a bit exposed. I, I think in a season where an ageing Philippe Alio had somehow got himself into a McLaren cockpit, it kind of tells you where the team was, and it, and it clearly wasn't on the ascent in, during that season. I think Brundle had some really, really good races in 94, particularly Monaco and Adelaide, but he was never a driver that Ron was going to fall in love with for a better expression like he did with Senna like he did with Hacken and, and Prost back in the the mid 80s at that stage it was all about Mika wasn't it I mean let's be let's be fair and clear on that so you have to feel a bit sorry for Martin and then Mark Blundell a year later I think on the whole um, you know one year deals are what concentrates drivers minds anything you know anything that's race by race or three races I think can be detrimental just to the just to the confidence of a driver and, and, and how he performs depending on the experience of the driver but I think you know you need that stability you need to know that you're going to get a good crack of the whip during any given season and I think at that stage Ron, Ron had a bit of a cavalier attitude to some of his drivers and unfortunately Martin was was probably not the first, not the last, but at that stage, it for a, an experienced professional that had won quite a lot outside of F1, had been on podiums, arguably should have won a Grand Prix or two at, at least. I think everybody's pretty aligned on that one. I think it was a little bit disrespectful to to treat somebody like Brundle in that in that fashion. So as we mentioned, we know McLaren would end up with Mercedes engines for 95. And those discussions must have been well advanced by this stage. But Mercedes was keeping up appearances that it was focusing on Sauber while also applying some pressure to the team. It helped get into F1 and was currently supplying engines too. Amid rumours that Tom Walkinshaw of Benetton was trying to get Mercedes to set up a works F1 team that he would run for them, and speculation that Mercedes could even entice Penske back to F1, given their successful Indy 500 project in 1994, Mercedes said any decisions about its F1 future would be taken by the end of September, which was the deadline it had given Sauber to show its financial plans. So about a month on from where we are now. Mercedes said it had helped Sauber when its main sponsor pulled out earlier in the year, but a spokesperson for Mercedes added, Our international motorsport concept is based on partners sponsoring their running costs and us providing engines. Gary, given how close we were to McLaren Mercedes being announced for 1995 and and the fact that Rom was trying to get Jordan to take the Peugeot engines, do you think Mercedes' mind was probably already made up on Sauber by this point? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's it's it never happens overnight these these decisions. I think there's a big plan in place, and I think you know we've got to look back at what Mercedes really were at that point in time. It was an Elmore engine. It wasn't you know it wasn't though it was a Mercedes fully funded concept or not fully funded. Obviously, they paid for it, but they 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 set up the engineering the 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 team behind it were not you know 
renowned Mercedes people. They were Ilmore, Mario Illen. So it was one of those situations, I think, where um, Mercedes also wanted to step up the ladder a little bit. And McLaren had shown through the years that they, you know, they, they did find the sponsorship to do the job. Um, they just needed to do the job. And in doing that, they needed an engine as well. I mean, it was. Um, it, it might have been just a little bit too early for McLaren to have uh, signed up with Mercedes and got rid of Peugeot as such because, you know, Peugeot came on quite strong, to be honest, albeit that we had lots of little reliability issues with the engine whenever we got it. But at the end of the day, I think it was there, were, there could have been a strong relationship built between Peugeot and McLaren. But, you know, obviously the decision was made to go the Mercedes route. Maybe it had more clout, maybe whatever the reasons were. You know, obviously it led into lots of things through the years with, with McLaren, with the road car stuff as well. So there was, you know, the, the big picture was maybe more than we had we saw. But I think that um, as far as Mercedes were concerned, they were better to get into bed with McLaren than they were being partially in bed with, uh, with Sauber, who were, and to be honest, still are a team that's still fighting the battle of... Um, of uh, being successful, I suppose you might call it. Whereas M- McLaren's total focus at that point in time was getting back to what they were, and their their Honda days, I suppose you might call it. So, um, and they showed they could do it. You know, McLaren showed they could do it. They they took on the Ford engine for for 1991 and, and won with that. Um, so it's it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, I think for Mercedes and for McLaren, the right thing was for them to get into bed together. We mentioned Walkinshaw there. He was also linked to a takeover of Lotus, which prompted Lotus to issue a response to those rumours. And you'll see why I use the word response in a moment. The team said in a statement, no formal approach has been tabled, which is not really a denial. Um, Speaking about this difficult period, this is right towards the end of Lotus's F1 existence. Uh, On F1's Beyond the Grid podcast in 2021, Then team boss Peter Collins said lots of discussions were going on that were genuine, but if they didn't happen, there was no future. And as we covered in a previous episode with Johnny Herbert, uh, which is well worth a listen if you've not heard it, unfortunately, there was no future. Sam, you're used to uh, having to pick through people trying to uh, bat off things that you've found out or or deny things that you're trying to write. If someone tells you no formal approach has been tabled, it's not really an out-and-out denial. So I guess we could say that maybe Walkinshaw was sniffing around Lotus at this point. I, I think certainly an informal approach would have happened at the very least. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, at, at that stage, Tom Walkinshaw was was clearly looking for, for something else and then ultimately, of course, went on to um, to run Ligier with, with Briatore um, and then obviously Arrows a, a bit later on. He was ambitious. Um, he wanted to be a, a team owner. He had his vision. He was um, quite a, a forceful personality in, in business, as we know. But I think he would have been very attractive to the, the Lotus name and the Lotus heritage. I mean, who wouldn't? But of course, at that stage, Lotus was pretty complex in in ownership and in its financial situation. And it was pretty desperate during 94. It just became more and more evident, didn't it? I think even that, that brief flicker of, of possibility at Monza when... Johnny Herbert heartbreakingly got taken out by 
by by by Gary's um, one of Gary's peddlers, Eddie Irvine, at the Retifilio on that that first lap. But was, I think that was really the final nail in the coffin for for many reasons. But yeah, you know w- w- what I know and what I've read of of Tom Walkinshaw was that he was he he liked to take opportunities, and certainly Lotus would have. Um, you know, was one of the more interesting propositions then, but plainly, they're, they're, I think it was a, it was too far gone. Let's put it at that point, and it, um, it clearly just never got to a to a serious stage. Well, one team then was on the brink. Uh, another confirmed it was on its way into F one. F three thousand team forty Corsa said they were ninety nine percent sure they would be on the F one grid in nineteen ninety five. Work had started on a car which was expected to be powered by a custom Ford engine. Pedro Diniz was lined up to drive one of the cars, and the team was expected to sign another Brazilian driver, which it did in the end with Roberto Moreno, as the step up to F one was being funded by Brazilian sponsors. Sam, this feels right up your street. How excited were you by the prospect of 40 coming into F1? I reckon I was one of probably a dozen people in the world that was really looking forward to 40 coming into Formula 1. You and Ed. You and Ed Straw. Well, there's two of them. Two of the 12, (laughs) yeah. You know, the reason being I was a big Formula 3000 fan and I was also lucky enough to work in it um, when I was very young as a teenager too. Guido 40 ran a really decent setup in the particularly the early 90s and especially in 91 with uh, Emanuele Naspetti, a driver Gary briefly worked with in, in 93. 40 course were, I think, certainly at the sharp end of Formula 3000 in title contention, arguably should have won it in 91, but but uh, Christian Fittipaldi did in the end. Of course, F1 was going to be a very different proposition for, for Guido 40, but there was, there was no reason to think that they couldn't at least start to build on something if they... They got their their platform right for that first season. I think, though, when it became known that Pedro Diniz was essentially bankrolling the, the, the team through Brazilian sponsors and connections that he had, that's when the alarm bells probably started to ring a bit. You know, you, startup Formula One teams have to be realistic in, in the, their financial and commercial um, outlay, you know, Gary will attest to that and has done many times. So, you know, whereas EJ and uh, and Gary and Jordan came in with experienced and quick drivers like Bertrand Gascho and Andrea De Cesaris, Forty Corsa felt like they were just coming in to kind of be there, and because they had a good deal. So there's a big difference then in terms of what you're able to achieve and the package that you can build for a debut Formula One season. It, it's a real shame in a way because they. There were some really good teams in Formula 3000 at that time. And apart from Jordan, many of them just fell by the wayside. You know, Pacific is an obvious example as, as well as Forty Corsa. So, but even then in the early to mid 90s, I think the time had passed for teams like Forty Corsa to come in and do a job in Formula 1. I think really Jordan and Sauber were, were, were the last of the teams that um, that were able to achieve and build something at the end of the day. Yeah, let's, let's pick up on that point. Gary, this is obviously the step Jordan made from 1990 to 91, but how much had F1 changed from then to just a few years later when, when Forty was trying it? Was it still realistic if it was done right? Well, it's still realistic, but I think that you know when we came in in 1991, we did more than bring Jordan into Formula One. We woke up the other teams that were doing Formula One that actually, hang on a minute or two, you know, 
a new team can come in and do well, we better wake up here and get on with this job because a lot of them were just in Formula One. They'd gone to sleep, I suppose you might call it. Got comfortable. And they were involved. Yeah, felt comfortable. They were in Formula One. They, you know, they were getting their prize money. You know, whatever it be. Um, but we, you know, we came in and showed them that actually, if you try hard enough, you can do a good job. So, forty were unlucky. They were like three years later. Um, I think Sauber were the last team to come in that really sort of, you know, showed true potential. Um, but you know, I think forty were unlucky. There was like three years later when everybody had woken up a little bit, to be honest. So things had moved on, and they came in, you know, seeing what we had done in ninety one and Sauber had done in ninety two that that they were trying to just um, do the same thing, come from Formula three thousand to Formula one, and you know, the cars had got more technically advanced. I think Formula one because because of the efforts that we had put in. Um, and it wasn't just about, you know, reading the regulations and converting your Formula 3000 mind to, to F1. It was about being deeper than that because you had to really have a big plan. And you couldn't really come in with the finances for one year. So as we've seen, it's, it takes a long time to sort of get your feet under the table, get yourself the, the manpower, the consistency, the workforce that you need to address all the situation. And if you don't do that, you, you end up, you know, you struggle the next year, as we did with Jordan in 92. You know, we, we, we struggled the second year because we were a good risk team in 1991, but we weren't a good risk team and a good design team. So, you know, you need to build for the future and you need to accept that and have the budget to do that. So um, it was one of those sort of situations, I think, you could say that time moved on for 40 and that was one of the reasons why they never really got on top of it. You needed to be a different, a different focus, a different outlook to be successful two or three years later than we were in 91. Before we get onto the track action, we have to talk about the track itself. This was the year when Eau Rouge was fame infamously, I was going to say famously, infamously reprofiled with a chicane put in the middle of it to slow it down. Everyone at least knew even then it was a temporary measure until the runoff could be extended for the following year. And it was one of quite a few corners that were hastily changed in 1994 to slow them down after the tragedies of Imola. But given this was meant to be a safety move, the drivers weren't impressed. They pointed out that the tight chicane now forced them to approach on a line that had them heading towards a concrete wall on the right-hand side in the braking zone. Perhaps a sign of how hasty some of those 94 track changes were. Sam, you mentioned this at the beginning a bit. What did you think, though, of the, the short-lived Eau Rouge chicane? Well, I, I think I gave it a decent opinion for me, didn't I, at the start of the show, as you said. <laughs> I, look, you, you have to put into context the feeling in Formula One that summer. It, it never experienced, or certainly in modern Formula One since the early 80s, anything as, as, as grim as what happened during that month of May. Two drivers had died. A host of others have been seriously injured, Venlinger, Lamy, uh, Andrea Montemini. So there was clearly some action that, that needed to be taken. But it, it's a fine line, isn't it, between progressive action on, on various fronts, the car, the circuits, and even even driver safety uh, apparel as well. But it's a fine line between that and, and, and knee-jerk reactions. And, and the FIA and Formula One had to get it right with hindsight, you look back and you look at some of those uh, amendments to circuits and, and they do look extremely agricultural, let's say. And when something 
like that is is trialed at Eau Rouge, and despite it being a, a stopgap thing, it just it just seems all the more ridiculous in lots of ways. That approach to the breaking area of the new chicane with that wall ahead of you must have been absolutely terrifying. I've watched a little bit of um, on board. I think it was one of the Tyrrells, and you are you are hurtling down that hill, down that gradient, probably nudging two hundred miles an hour with a wall directly in front of you, probably 15, 20 metres off, off the, the actual racing line. So I can understand the driver's concerns significantly about the dangers of that. But there is no way in hell that something such as that would have got past now. I mean, there's just no way. But again, at the time, it seemed much better to do something like that than chance your arm at, uh, with something else happening because they just couldn't afford that for there to be another serious accident that season don't forget it was only 12 months before that that Alessandro Zanardi had that absolutely massive shunt at the top of Eau Rouge and was was injured I mean not not seriously but you know he, he was rattled around quite a bit so they knew how cars could leave the track and and be pretty badly smashed up with the lack of runoff at Orish. You've also got to put in the topography of the circuit, right? So Eau Rouge, as we know, very little room even now to move things back because it's just the natural incline of that part of the of the countryside in, in the Ardennes. So a, a difficult one, but I, I think possibly a different profile of of something there would have been preferable to to what we saw. But like I said... Something had to be done. It was done. It wasn't perfect, but thank goodness it was only for one season. Yeah. Now, Gary, this this obviously broke up what's famously a really fast, long section of, you know, back then maybe not totally flat out, but this was a long stretch that was always about speed. Breaking it up in this way, did that alter the setup demands of the track much for the team or, or did the overall character of, of Spa remain based on the rest of the lap? Well, it was difficult because obviously that weekend in Spa in uh, 94, it was wet. It was wet, wet, and really wet. Um, so it was one of those situations where we never really got down to the basics of the track. The came would obviously change the characteristics because of, instead of having that fast corner taking you on to the long straight, it was a slow corner. Um, so, you know, the tendency whenever you have more slow corners is to run more downforce um, on the car. So, you know, the drag goes up a little bit and the straight line speed disappears a little bit. So it, it would have, if it had been a dry weekend where we could have exploited it a little bit, we would have, you know, we would probably have altered the setup aerodynamically a little bit, but nothing too dramatic. But just going back to, to what Sam was saying there, you know, it's one of those sort of situations where the FIA, they, they needed to do something. But the, after the accidents at Imola, we had our first uh, technical working group meeting in Monaco with, with Max and Bernie. And... You know, definitely was said at that point in time, something has to be done. Something has to be seen to be done. And obviously, visually, these chicanes were something you could see. Lots of other things went on in the car, which we'll come to in a minute or two. But but basically, the tracks had to be altered. And we went testing at Areth um, during the season. I forget which point in time it was during the season, but it, it might have just been um, post-Monaco or before Monaco. I'm not 100% sure. And the FIA wouldn't let us run at Reth because the first corner didn't have a runoff area. So they put straw bales on the track to, to make a chicane. All the teams were there, not just us. Um, 
And basically, the, the straw bales were put in such a way that it turned you straight into the pit wall. So if you made a mistake, you hit the concrete pit wall um, head on. So a lot of the track changes were done without a lot of thinking, I have to say. And again, just going back to Spa, it was done without a lot of thinking because it did point you straight at a concrete wall. And although you might be going slower when you hit it, the likelihood of hitting it was, was much, much higher. So there was a balancing act needed during that season, um, to be honest. And I think every weekend we had some difference to the car or to to tracks, whatever. Um, and it was definitely a season that was a little bit out of control um, because of the, the incidents that happened at, at Imola. Rightly so, something had to be done, but sometimes you need to think a little bit before you do it. The perils of acting in haste, which I think, as you've outlined there, went on a lot in 94. So once the track action began, the big story, of course, was Rubens Barrichello claiming Jordan's first pole position. This was achieved through a successful well-timed gamble on slicks at the end of Friday's drying qualifying session. And pole position was confirmed on Saturday when rain meant nobody could beat Barrichello's time. Rubens and Eddie Jordan, as I said, both credit this gamble to you, Gary, and both admitted that initially Barrichello thought it was too risky. Eddie said in his book that the Eau Rouge chicane was a blessing because it took away one of the scariest parts of the track to tackle on slicks in damp conditions, and he said Barrichello's lap was perfect. Rubens sat out the Saturday session, watching on nervously as track conditions improved towards the end, but nobody could beat his time. EJ wrote in his book, we had blown away the favourites, Ferrari, Williams and Benetton, with a mix of clever tactical thinking and superb driving. It was an incredible feeling and we were intent on enjoying it. So Gary, we've, we've given you the big build up. You were the mastermind behind this. Talk us through it. Well, I wouldn't say I was the mastermind behind it, but um, at some point in time, somebody needs to make the final decision. And it was sort of put in a position with us that that we couldn't really make any other decision. Um, Rubens had done a run in the wets and, you know, everything was happy and it basically got to within about uh, 15 minutes before the end of the session, 12 minutes before the end of the session or whatever it was. Um, the tyres were destroyed because the track was drying to a certain extent. Um, the tyres were, you know, used up. So there was no more lap time left in the car um, with those tyres on it. So he came to the pits and Rubens and I always had this way of having a chat on the way into the pit lane. So we had a chat about what was going on. And he was saying it was just, you know, it was really killing the tyres now, but there's lots of wet patches. And we got to the garage and had a chat about putting on slick tyres or whatever. And by the time we've, we got to that point, Rubens was unsure. He said, no, I'm not sure it's... it's uh, you know, it's dry enough, to be honest. And I tried to say to him, well, look, Rubens, the last time you drove on the track was like three minutes ago, which is six, six, or three laps ago, which is like six minutes plus. Um, the other cars were running around and they weren't going faster at that point in time. So putting on a new set of wets, which was the other, you know, the coin was in the air, basically. It was either a set of wets or a set of dry tires. Um, I put on another set of wets. You might get one lap out of them, but the chances of destroying them was pretty was pretty high um, because, as we know, that midsection at Spa, it uh, it takes a lot out of the tyres. Um, so we kept an eye just on other cars running. They weren't getting faster. In the end, I said to Ribbons, if it was me, I would go for the slicks. But it's down to you. You know, you have to drive the car. And he said, OK, let's give it a shot. So we put them on, and away we went. Luckily... The timing was right to just go across the uh, the finish line. I think it was eight seconds before the 
before the flag came out. So we were, you know, last man standing on track. So if there was an advantage to be taken, that was the lap. And I was on the radio telling him, this is it, Rubens, you know. Um, so he did the job. I mean, you know, if you had to give a set of circumstances to somebody, to a racing driver, um, then you couldn't give it to a better guy than Rubens to do that. He was just one of these fingertip drivers. You know, he could feel everything. He wasn't a muscle driver. Um, so he took the best out of it and, and obviously pole position. But for me, the big thing was, um, you know, Eddie qualified fourth in the other car on wet tires. I think it was nine tenths difference um, over two minute, you know, excess of a two minute lap. So in reality, everything was very, very close. It was just, we took the gamble at just the right time. Now, every other driver in the pit lane will tell you if we had had slicks on, we would have been a pole. Of course they would, but they didn't. So that's why, it, you know, as Eddie's saying, we got one over the big boys. And that was, that was the main thing for us as a team, was to show that we were thinking on our feet. And uh, yes, it didn't turn out uh, at the end of the day to be a positive, but it was our first pole position and nobody would ever take that away. Yeah, yeah, it's still a memorable moment to this day. Now, Barrichello being on pole led to an altercation in the Williams debrief between Damon Hill and David Coulthard. Hill was starting third just behind Barrichello and Michael Schumacher, who's with him on the front row. And Coulthard, having raced against Rubens extensively in their younger days, warned Damon to be careful of Rubens at the start. Coulthard said in his book that Hill took this as a wind-up, and as DC tried to explain himself and repeated the advice, Hill told him that if he said that again, we are going to go outside. I, I can't think of a, a less Damon Hill phrase. Um, Coulthard said, uh, the engineers sat in silence as the two drivers squared up to each other, with DC saying he accepted Damon's invitation to go outside, uh, but it never got that far. Coulthard said, Damon could be quite an intense guy. We bickered back and forth for a minute or so until it just faded away. It wasn't so much handbags as at dawn as we didn't even get manage to get our purses out. He also, um, DC also admitted in his book that he looked back on that period with more respect for Hill than he had at the time. As Damon not only had to carry the mantle of being the next top British driver after Nigel Mansell of all people, but that year he'd been thrust into the limelight after the death of Ayrton Senna as well. And Coulthard believes Hill wasn't given the credit he deserves for his handling of all that. But Sam, let's look at the incident in isolation, was uh, was this a bit of an overreaction from Hill? I mean, it's 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 one of the most unlikely prize fights ever, isn't it? I mean, it's not it's not going to be top of the bill, is it? On a on a on a Saturday night at uh, your call, you'd want to see it though, wouldn't you? <laughs> Just so you could believe they actually. Yeah, happened. very strange, bit tetchy, yeah, to say the least. But I, I think the hindsight that that Coulthard paints on it there is is probably spot on. It was something or nothing, really, wasn't it? Damon was under a lot of stress that that summer, and and I imagine. The occasional sense of humour failure or misinterpretation was was pretty easily triggered. I, th I think Coulthard was right about Barrichello actually, because I remember in '91 in Formula Three, anyone who watched Grandstand on a Saturday afternoon would have seen Rubens uh, fluffing his pole position and then occasionally overcompensating it with with jerky moves into the to the first corner so you know dc was right in a way um hill felt the pressure like they all do but be, because he was such a i think he was such an intelligent and thoughtful driver away from the cockpit and in it too that he, he often over analyzed things and i think this was just a 
a classic case of, of such a flare-up, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we should say, in uh, in fairness to Rubens, he made a good start uh, in in this race and did lead lead up the hill until Schumacher got through. But the uh, the tension between the Williams drivers carried over into the race. While Schumacher um, did uh, disappear at the front and Rubens, uh, as Gary mentioned, Jordan didn't come away with anything from this race. Barrichello spun out later on. Coulthard was running ahead of Hill, who felt that he should be let through, given that late in the race, Schumacher was only 10 seconds up the road. The situation eventually resolved itself when Coulthard was called in for a precautionary check on a loose rear wing in the closing stages. But that wasn't good enough for Hill, who said afterwards that Williams should have acted sooner. Patrick Head was unmoved by Hill's criticism, saying Williams would have asked Coulthard to move over if he'd stayed ahead, but they had plenty of time before the end of the race. Gary, from a pit wall perspective, what do you make of this? Should Hill have been released earlier? I think it's one of those difficult things because obviously, you know, your your whole plan for the race is to look after whatever you've got to look after. Um, so, you know, if Coulthard was driving within, you know, his tyres or, or Hill was going to wring its neck from the beginning, then they're driving differently to achieve the same goal at the end of it. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to say because any one driver will always want uh, to be ahead of his teammate for sure. So it's one, it's a, it's a difficult situation. And, you know, before the race starts, we always used to have a plan um, that if, if X happened, then, you know, we would call you and, and give you the, the news that you needed to let the other guy through. I mean, at that time, it was team orders were always questionable, I suppose you might call it. But unless you have a plan before the race starts, then it's it's very difficult to actually sort of implement something new during the race. We, we still see it currently, you know, drivers still squabble. You know, if you go back to, to Jordan's spa win in, in 98, um, you know, Ralph was upset that Hill was was in front of him and you know they wanted to he wanted to battle whereas Damon was going to take him off if he tried to battle so you know it was one of those sort of situations where it's, it's never changed the two teammates when you get there together and you're racing you know you're gonna you're gonna want to beat your teammates some for some reason or another could hell have caught uh, Schumacher at that point in time you know you'll never know really but at the end of the day I'm pretty sure I do remember Coulthard's rear wing moving around quite a bit so it wasn't just a a sort of a preliminary check. It was actually a real check. Um, so the end result was, you know, the, the thing sorted itself out. But it's very, very difficult with two teammates to tell one to back out of it and, and let the other one through whenever you're pretty sure that the, the guy behind you isn't going to actually make much difference. So he'll got his second place, but uh, he left Spa disgruntled and now 35 points behind Schumacher with only 50 still to play for. But that all changed a few hours later when Schumacher was excluded from the race. The exclusion was because the plank under Schumacher's car, a new feature that had been introduced just a couple of races earlier to slow the cars down, was excessively worn. The plank was allowed to be worn down to a thickness of no less than 9mm, but there was an area at the front of Schumacher's plank that was worn down to 7.4mm. Benetton was summoned and attempted to offer a defence, or several defences. Firstly, they said Schumacher's car suffered a technical problem after its first pit stop, which they believed could have caused Schumacher's uh, subsequent spin on lap 19, coming out of the Fania S's. 
but they said the car's inconsistency could have been a consequence of the spin rather than the cause. They also argued that the spin over the kerb could have caused the damage to the plank. Then Benetton said that Jos Verstappen's car was set up identically to Schumacher's and Verstappen's car was legal after the race. So Benetton believed this reinforced their belief that something had gone wrong on Schumacher's car. The stewards dismissed all of that with the curb excuse being rejected because there were clear markings at the rear that were sideways across the plank from the spin, whereas the illegal section was at the front and all the markings were longitudinal, which suggested they were not due to a spin and were just due to being rubbed along the circuit. Gary, there's quite a lot there. What did you make of all this? And when you hear those excuses that Benetton were, were kind of throwing at the wall, is that a team just scrambling to find anything that might convince the FIA to let them off? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot more to it than that, I suppose you might call it. But let, let's just deal with the plank situation first. It was introduced because there was a belief that Ayrton Senna's car, uh, that Ayrton Senna's crash was caused by the car bottoming after a safety car period and bottoming in the middle of a you know, 200 mile corner, 200 mile an hour corner, um, meant that the car just, the wheels didn't have any grip and off he went. Um, so the plank was introduced basically to try to reduce the risk of this. Now, it was one of those sort of situations where you know, you never run the car where it's beating itself into death in the ground because that obviously does upset the car. But you need to be careful whenever you've got something that will wear. It's not just a plank of wood from a building site. It's actually a very high density piece of, of uh, resin uh, timber as such. Um, so it's a pretty good it's a pretty good piece of kit. It doesn't wear easily or it didn't wear easily. It wears less easily now even because there's lots of skids around it everywhere. So... Uh, you know, there was a regulation. Um, the nine millimeters was a was a very vague thing because you, you know the plank was ten millimeters thick. So basically, there was a, a theoretical nine millimeter or ninety percent if it got below ninety percent of the weight. Um, it was illegal. So you know, where do you draw the line? Because wearing it down to whatever it was, seven point four millimeters in, in one corner. It was probably still above the 90% weight, but it was under the 9 millimeters. So the regulations had it covered in any way to basically make sure you didn't wear the plank too much. Um, but then going on to, to Benetton and them trying to find solutions to everything, um, we were on the receiving end of them, not of them finding a solution back in Aida in 94 when we finished third and we protested Michael Schumacher's car who won the race. Um, because the, the the way the regulations were written, um, it said the underfloor, you know, you weren't allowed to have holes in it, basically. It had to be non-porous. So if you look at the porosity, the the dictionary says, that, you know, you pour water into it, it shouldn't run out, which means there's no holes in it. But the way the bards boards were mounted on the Benetton, they had the, the bards board, they had a forward bracket and a rearward bracket. Um, and that meant the bars board was sort of displaced to the underfloor by like 100 millimetres. So in theory, they had a big hole in the, um, in the underfloor because that had to be a continuous surface. On our car, we had uh, a beefier forward bracket, but no rearward bracket um, because that meant you had, you had a periphery around it, which meant you had a, a continuous um, flat floor surface. So in our book, we were legal and in our book, the, the Benetton wasn't, and we protested it. And the answer we got back from Benetton, from the FIA via Benetton, I suppose you might call it, was that the surface that was left was non-porous. So 
although you had a big hole in it, it meant that what was left of the surface, so it means a sieve is actually uh, non-porous. So it's one of these sort of situations where we learned that day in IADA that you're never going to beat somebody who will argue their, 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 um, their cause right to the death. And that's what Ross did at that, that, that uh, IADA race meeting. And it's what he tried to do in, uh, in Spa. You know, the, the fact of your teammate's car had no damage is, is, is irrelevant, really, to be honest. Probably using completely different lines anyway. So, yeah, I think Benetton would try everything possible because that's what they were as a team. They, they, they were very good at reading the rule book and finding solutions to, to things that other people didn't find a solution to. Well, they were unsuccessful and uh, naturally this led to yet more scrutiny of Benetton, which had already endured several brushes with the law by this point of the season. Ross Braun led the defence of his team post-verdict, saying, We totally refute any uh, suggestions that we have been cheating. This is my third season with Benetton. I don't think it has ever been guilty of any infringement. He also said, Why didn't we do any cheating last year? We don't suddenly start cheating, particularly with the performance advantage and the driver we've got. Schumacher addressed it at the end of the season in an interview where he said, if the plan, if uh, if the plank is one millimetre too thin, we should not talk about total, uh, talk about fraud. But one millimetre too little is one millimetre too little. The car was not in order and I have to live with that. He did point out that he felt other teams had been given room to move in similar situations, while he felt Benetton was being particularly harshly treated. Sam, looking at the disqualification and the throwing out of all Benetton's arguments, did the FIA come down too hard on Benetton for this one? Well, we'll call me naive on this instance, but I, I think Benetton might have been. And, you know, I, I wasn't in the paddock. Naive. You're naive. <laughs> I, I I wasn't in the paddock. And, you know, I didn't know Benetton as, as intimately as, as Gary did. But for, from, from my perspective, I think the where... You know, that, that spin, I, I've replayed that spin at, at Fania with, with Schumacher did a 360. And for me, it's a bit of an anomaly because what, what I remember from that is that the FIA came out and said that initially anyway, that the curb was totally smooth there. Well, it, it clearly wasn't. You can see Schumacher rattle over those those curbs. If, if you watch, the, watch it again, it, it doesn't look too smooth. And you know, the rear of the car clearly goes across a, a, a serrated surface. Now, you know, I, I'm not a vehicle dynamicist and don't know what the damage might have been, but it, it seems it seems like a bit of a coincidence, doesn't it, that they, they had this, this wear. You have to ask yourself the question here, and I know this sounds like a bit of a conspiracy theory. I, I don't know if conspiracy theories were around in the early 90s, but anyway... I bet they were. They probably were, weren't they? Yeah, well, it goes back to, to JFK and the moon landings, doesn't it? So, yeah, we're, 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 well, um, we're well attuned to conspiracy theories. But did the FIA get into a position where they were presented with an opportunity to rein Benetton and Schumacher in? There was a lot of previous, wasn't there? You know, Gary's dipped into a bit of there at, at Aida, but there was a load more after Imola as well when, um, you know, there was a lot of insinuation about software, about what they might be capable of um, achieving with that software capability. So 
you know, did they know, did the FIA know they'd been outfoxed when it came to that software? And then did it give them an open goal at Spa when it came to something like this that they could convert pretty easily? This is the conspiratorial part of it. You know, nobody knows. 30 years on almost and nobody really quite knows. It's still open to interpretation. But ultimately, had Schumacher, as you said, Glenn, kept that win, he would have been 35 points ahead of Schumacher. And irrespective of the two-race ban that was coming up for, for Schumacher, over five races, that was incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for Hill to make up. So, so you know, was there was there some cloak-and-dagger politics going on behind the uh, behind the curtain here? It, it just... it. If, if there's one instance in racing where it could have happened, I feel as though that summer of 94, that some of that did take place. Yeah, maybe a, a, a wider debate for another time. F1 was certainly feeling the, uh, uh, well, I think, a lack of star power at the time. So maybe they needed a championship fight. Anyway, Benetton were outraged and some of their key players still feel wronged over this one in particular. The reason for that, uh, it's something Gary mentioned earlier, which is if a plank was worn, they believe if a plank was worn below the nine millimeter thickness that was allowed, it could be weighed. And as long as it still weighed 90 percent of the original weight, that would be OK. Ross Braun said in his book that this provision existed for a damaged plank. So he felt Schumacher's spin had done sufficient damage to warrant the FIA weighing it. Braun admitted, we had worn the plank too much at the front, but we'd also smashed it. It was substantially damaged, and he felt it was black and white that the weight should have been the deciding factor instead. And Pat Simmons is also still troubled by this. He's quoted in Damien Smith's brilliant new book about Benetton, uh, talking about this. He also spoke to our own Ed Straw a few years ago on the Autosport podcast, where he said, to this day, that was incredibly unjust. Simmons revealed that Schumacher had expressed concern on the grid about his car running too low on the reconnaissance laps out of the pits. So Benetton raised the ride height, but Pat admitted to Ed, we probably did have the ride height a little too low. However, like Braun, he was convinced the plank should have been cleared based on its weight. Uh, in the end, he said it wasn't the most pragmatic decision from the FIA, but he reckoned it was unfortunately a political decision against Benetton. Gary, what do you think of all that? Firstly, you've, you've listened to Sam kind of outlining any additional motivations they might have had to throw Schumacher out. But you talked about the, the weight element. Do, do you think that they should have just weighed it? And if it was um, above 90%, it should have been fine. Yes, I, I do agree with that, to be honest. It's one of those sort of situations, as far as I can remember, the plank wear was all at the, the front, one corner of the front, so a sort of triangular section on one side that uh, was worn away. So it wasn't as though, you know, the car was too low at the front completely. Um, it could have been worn by going across a curb just because the front of the car was a fraction too low. And I do agree with Ross in this instance that, you know, more, more than I agree with him in the instance about the, uh, the flat bottom in, in IADA, <laughs> uh, because that, for me, was blatantly uh, illegal. But um, this, this instance, for sure, the, the two rules were put in place because there's no way you'll ever wear the plank down um, to nine millimetres over the complete plank. So, in effect, you know, you're, you're self-protected there. But if it is less than nine millimetres in a certain area, then the weight should come into it. And as long as it's more than 90%, then fine. Um, 
So I do agree with them in that instance, but it's it's one of those sort of situations. It was put there. The plank was put there for a reason. So and we we see it so often, even even currently, where cars start the the, uh, the practice sessions far too low, and hit the ground too hard, and they end up bringing them up. You know, it's one of those sort of situations where you've got a set of circumstances, like you had at Spa that weekend. It might just be better to start the car too high, and end up lowering it if you have time. And obviously, you know, something caught them out. Now, the, as we said earlier, the conditions in Spa that weekend were were changing so much. It was very, very wet to begin with. Again, you know, the, the wet tires and the dry tires act completely differently. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that whenever um, Pat Simmons is saying that Michael Schumacher said on the grid that the car was touching the ground a bit too hard, I'm sure that was that was probably true. And they just didn't react enough. So in my book, I suppose the car was too low. It shouldn't have worn the plank, but the rules, the 9mm and the 90% should have covered that one sort of area of wear. Um, so as, as Sam said, there might have been some politics coming into play there a little bit to keep the uh, the season alive a little bit longer, I suppose. Um, but it's 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 the way it is. You know, it, it happens every year. We saw we saw um, 2023. You know, we saw that uh, Hamilton and, and Leclerc getting disqualified in, in Austin um, from good finishing positions for. You know, for the same reason so it's it's about keeping everything under control as a team and if you push the limit a little bit too much then you know you pay the consequences yeah i think that's that's the thing for me is that ross and pat they're both admitted that the plank you know it was too worn at the front the fia paperwork does exist it's around maybe we'll um stick it out on our at bbv10's social media accounts around the time this this comes out because yeah there's, there's kind of consistent scuffing at the front of the plank there's a, there's a very crude diagram um looks like someone like me drew it and then there's kind of gouges or scratches at the back of the plank which were attributed to the spin so i think if if they've the the, the difficulty is in that 90 percent weight issue and there's a bit of confusion over if um the plank did get weighed or not uh benetton mechanic steve matchett said in his book in 1994 that it was weighed and that it was okay but um braun and simmons have both said that they were trying to get charlie whiting to weigh it because they thought it would be fine and that the fa said no so not quite clear if it got weighed and it was rejected even though it's fine or if it didn't actually get weighed but things got worse even worse for benetton in the days after spa as on the Tuesday after the race, Schumacher's two-race ban for ignoring a black flag at the British Grand Prix was upheld by the International Court of Appeal, meaning he would miss the upcoming Italian and Portuguese Grand Prix. Schumacher attended the hearing in Paris, saying he thought Benetton had some solid arguments that gave him hope, but he feared that the Spa disqualification worked against him, even though he, believes, uh, he believed he won that race fairly. We'll save a proper look at this band for a Silverstone 94 episode, which we will do one day. All I'll say for now is that Benetton gave quite a muddled defence um, for the second time in, in a couple of days, uh, which included lines such as Schumacher didn't see the black flag, he but he saw a board being held out with a five on it that he thought was them telling him he had a five second penalty. Unsurprisingly, the Court of Appeal said not for a single moment did the arguments offer any defense sam let's focus though on just in the moment we're a couple of days removed from the spa disqualification do you think having that hearing just after you've been thrown out of a race 
would that in any way have hurt Benetton's case here when challenging the ban for the Silverstone offence? I mean, plainly it shouldn't have done because there's due legal process that, that shouldn't be influenced by other events. But, you know, you have to wonder, don't you? I, I, I don't think it did them any any particular favours in terms of, you know, momentum of feeling with, with the FIA. And it was so complex through that, that whole summer. I, you know, again, maybe we're getting a bit conspiratorial here, but certainly it seemed a two-race ban for such an offence now seems incredibly harsh, but obviously there's a different judicial system now. It's, it's just a completely different um, era for, for how teams are uh, penalised, teams and drivers are, are penalised. But I think if ever there was an episode, alluding to what I said before, of, of sort of maybe some dark forces at play, then it seemed to have been quite possible in 1994 let's not forget as well that there was there was this weird febrile type of atmosphere in f1 at this stage from a penalty point of view um you know there, there were some precedents for although for sporting um sporting events that happened early that year remember eddie irvine got a, a two race ban i'm sure gary won't forget that at, at uh, interlagos a, you know a, a really draconian penalty for what was essentially a racing incident so the decision makers were seemed to be quite erratic at that point in Formula One in 1994. And I'm sure some of them were, were open to, um, yeah, the, you know, some of those suggestions of a, of, of a different kind, let's call it. Let's keep it quite generic without sort of pointing the finger at people. But they, it, it, the whole atmosphere then seemed to be highly political. And I think, let's not forget that Schumacher didn't win that race at Silverstone and the clerk of the course did make a cock up as well. Benetton were in breach of of, of a regulation, um, of breaking a regulation. So, letter of the law. Um, back then, it was you know a two race ban was open to the FIA for dishing out that that punishment. But in 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 light of today, it's just a completely. It just seems a, a very harsh penalty. But like I said, there there was a whole lot going on in the summer of 1994 and one day i just really hope one day we can get to the bottom of it and get some truth to what actually happened with all the you know the the, the soft software accusations and actually what went on politically between between mosley and and the fia and and, and benetton back then because it would be a fascinating read you know as as, as great as damien smith's book is you know, there is no real resolution to what actually what actually happened on a lot of these episodes, and I'm I'm sure one day it'll, it'll all come out in the wash, as they say. But as you say, Sam, you know, it it, it started even earlier than the the summer of '94. You know, Eddie Irvine's disqualification for one race in Brazil for, as you say, more or less a racing incident, uh, maybe an aggressive racing incident, but still a racing incident, and you appeal it, and you end up with a three race ban. So. You know, it's it's one of those sort of situations. If it was worthy of a three race ban, it was worthy of a three race ban at the beginning, not just because you appealed it. So there seemed to be something within the the appeal process that uh, that meant you just stayed away from it. Again, we learned our lesson because of our protest in Aida against uh, Michael's Benetton being illegal and against appealing anything because at the end of the day, the chances of winning were pretty low, and I think that's uh, that could still be said true to this day and age. So. You just got to keep your nose clean and, uh, and stay out of trouble. Yeah, the uh, Benetton had had many a brush with the law that year. Obviously, what's in, also interesting is we're talking about Brazil here very briefly. 
that was before all of the kind of the, the panic set in post Imola, and it shows that the FIA under under Max Mosley already had this kind of more draconian approach in mind. As you said, Gary, I think Max went on record um, before his death saying that it, it was all about deterring people from appealing. They didn't want people challenging their decisions um so we'll leave it there for spa 94 like most races from that year and as we kind of have done here you can you can pick up the main storylines and controversies and and run with them for weeks and you go backwards and forwards that, that that's the i guess i could say the beauty of 1994 i don't know if beauty is the right word but just a, a chaotic season particularly off track as always though we try to keep them contained to what went on at either side of the race we're talking about so any any unfinished 94 storylines here we'll, we'll pick them up uh, at a later date thanks to gary and to sam for joining us next time we're heading to 2001 and the nurburgring where the schumacher brothers did battle at the front of the field and michael and ferrari put some manners on ralph and williams in more ways than one the athletic 